This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. Hi, welcome to Storytelling Animals, a green podcast where we use books to think about our environmental crisis and what comes next. I'm your host, Dayton Martindale, and today my guest is Ben Goldfarb, the author of Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. So, as regular listeners know, the last couple episodes have been about different aspects of the trouble with car dependence, the negative impacts of car culture and the mass automobile use on the planet, on ourselves, um, who are, of course, part of the planet. Um, And, you know, we explored how science fiction has depicted different means of transportation. Um, But here we're really going to focus on the impacts on wildlife. I think it's um, a nice episode that fits both into the theme of car issues that we've been discussing lately and the theme from earlier this season on animal agency, because, for instance, to design a useful wildlife crossing, um, you need to really think about, okay, try to get into another animal's mind. You know, what type of crossing are they going to want to use and what type of crossing wouldn't they want to use? So, yeah, thematically, I think this episode fits well into what we've been talking about on this podcast. Um, The book itself is great. I highly recommend it. I did also want to announce that this marks the season series finale of Storytelling Animals as we know it. Um, There likely will be one more episode in September, just kind of a reflective episode looking back on the podcast with my brother Kyle, who also designed the podcast logo. Um, But for now, I'm just now starting in PhD program in environmental studies at University of Colorado Boulder. I just got to Boulder last week, and I'm going to be focused on that instead of the podcast for at least the foreseeable future. Um, so if you're a Patreon subscriber, I'm going to unpublish at the end of the month, so you won't be charged for September. And again, maybe one day uh, I'll be re- reawaken the podcast, and like I said, I'll have that wrap-up episode sometime in September, I hope. Um, but for now, thanks so much, everyone, for listening. And if this is your first episode, I hope you enjoy this conversation with the great Ben Goldfarb. Ben Goldfarb uh, to talk about his new book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. Um, ben, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Dayton. I'm honored. Yeah, it's so it's, it's a great book. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, and I think, you know, on some level, many people are probably aware that, yes, you know, some wild animals are killed by cars. You've probably seen them on the side of the road. Um, you know, I understood going in that roads can disrupt habitat. You know, the, the carbon emissions from cars are a problem, but reading this book, I, I came to realize just the effect on wildlife of cars and roads is just far greater in scope than I think I would have thought, um, you know, even as someone who tries to think about stuff like this a lot. So maybe just to begin, um, just kind of, and we'll dig into specifics soon, I'm sure, but in a general sense, just like how big of a problem is this? Yeah, it's it's a hard problem to wrap your head around for a, a lot of reasons, Dayton. And I, th- I think that, you know, when you talk about the problems that roads create, there's really this broad spectrum of problems, which I, I try to delineate in the book, you know, from, from kind of conspicuous or obvious to more inconspicuous or subtle or surprising, you know, and, and certainly on the conspicuous end of the spectrum, you know, you've got you've got wildlife vehicle collisions, you know, roadkill, the, as you say, the kind of the carcasses that we've all seen, you know, lying by the side of the road. And that's certainly an immense problem. Uh, you know, by some estimates, a, a million animals are killed by cars in the U.S. every day. Uh, you know, and certainly a lot of those are, are um, you know, common creatures like squirrels and raccoons and white-tailed deer, which, you know, certainly deserve, they, they don't, they don't deserve that either. But, um, you know, it's not just a problem for, for those, those common critters. It's also, you know, there are plenty of endangered species species that are existentially threatened by cars like ocelots or Florida panthers. Uh, so that's, you know, certainly the kind of the obvious problem are all these animals lying dead by the side of the highway. Uh, but then you've got, you know, sort of the subtler impacts, you know, you have the, the, the kind of the cutoff of migrations, you know, as the kind of moving fence of traffic just deters animals from crossing roads and reaching important habitats. You've got road noise, uh, you know, sort of chasing away creatures from places they'd otherwise like to live. You've got road salt, 
you know, which we spread on highways as de-icers, uh, you know, transforming aquatic ecosystems in, in ways that are really inimical to, uh, you know, a lot of, a lot of life. Um, so you've got, again, all of, all of these issues, some of which are visible to us, uh, you know, in the form of roadkill and, and many of which uh, are, are invisible to us. But, you know, certainly roads are, you know, one of the, one of the most significant forms of biodiversity and habitat loss on, on this planet. Yeah, I, I, I want to get into some of the you know less visible um, problems later, but just that one million per day estimate in the United States um, really blew me away. Uh, especially you know I write a lot about animal agriculture, and that's totally of a scale of like at least cows and pigs. Uh, you know this is as big of a killer um, as as that anyway, and and of course both come with their own environmental problems as well. Um, yeah, and, and so on that subject of roadkill, the one thing that was sort of tragic is the ways you highlight in which animals' own evolutionary defenses work against them. Um, you know, they evolved to respond to certain types of threats, and cars are just not like those threats. Um, right. so what are, what are a few examples of that? Yeah, you know, I'll, I'll just briefly say too that I, you know, I think that 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 one million animals a day estimate, I think I think that's an underestimate. You know, that that's that's a kind of a commonly cited figure that goes back to the, you know, the 1960s with some some sort of citizen science roadkill surveys the Humane Society did. I, I think that you know, based on most of a, a lot of the kind of the evidence that is is you know, sort of uh, compiling since then, you know, I think, I think the number is probably a lot higher than that. So even, I mean, even as shocking as that million animals a day figure is, I, I think that's, I think that's probably on the, on the low side. Um, I mean, as to your, your, your actual question, Dayton, I mean, I think that, you know, there are all kinds of examples of, of cars hijacking evolutionary history. You know, you think about, you know, many of our, our most common mammals, you know, who's, who's, sort of innate defenses tend to involve standing their ground, you know, hunkering down. Think about a, a porcupine, you know, kind of bristling its quills or a skunk, uh, you know, stopping to, uh, to, to spray. You know, those are, those are defenses that work really well when your predator is, you know, a, a, a fox or a coyote. Uh, but, you know, not when it's, a, you know, a, a, an SUV barreling along at 70 miles an hour. Um, you know, another kind of good example of, of, uh, of that is, uh, is bird sort of bird defense or bird flight. Um, you know, birds, this, this, this great research by a, a rhodecologist or an ecologist named Travis DeVault. Um, you know, and basically what he showed is that birds take off in the face of a predator using this thing called the distance rule, which basically means that they, they take off to escape depending on how far away a predator is rather than how fast it's going, right? So if you, you know, if you imagine, you know, being a grackle and there's a, you know, you, you see a, a bobcat, you know, creeping towards you, uh, let's say the bobcat's, you know, a hundred feet away or something like that, uh, you know, and, and you, you burst into flight to escape, you know, that makes sense when your predator is moving at kind of a normal rate of speed. Um, but when your predator is going faster than any, any danger you've you know, encountered in, in your entire evolutionary history, you know, taking off when that, when that car is a hundred feet away or 50 feet away doesn't make sense, right? You can't achieve sufficient velocity to escape the, the, uh, the car that's barreling towards you. So the distance rule doesn't apply, you know, in, in the face of these, the incredibly unnatural speed that, uh, that, that cars present. So there are just, yeah, so many, I mean, just think about any, you know, I mean, name, name a creature, you know, think about a, a, you know, a rattlesnake, which, you know, sort of stands its ground and relies on its venom to, you know, bite an attacker. Think about a, you know, a newt that kind of hunkers down because it has this, you know, this poisonous epidermis, uh, you know, that, uh, that's so good at repelling natural attackers, you know, and all of those evolutionary strategies are just rendered totally, not only not only futile but actually maladaptive in the face of the car because again they involve standing their ground rather than rather than fleeing mm -hmm. yeah and you mentioned how i think in the introduction there's an example of a bird that is actually evolving you know the the smaller wingspan birds are surviving better because they are better at maneuvering these cars so cars are actually now driving some of the evolution of these creatures 
Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a really cool study by a researcher named Charles Brown. And basically what he found, is, as you alluded to, uh, is that, you know, cliff swallows, which live kind of on the undersides of bridges, you know, a lot of, a lot of listeners have probably seen those kind of classic mud nests that, that swallows build. Uh, you know, those, those birds are evolving shorter wings over time. Um, because if, you know, if you have long wings, uh, you know, that's, well, that's good for flying, you know, long straight distances, um, but, you know, makes you less maneuverable, whereas short wings are really good for performing the kind of tight barrel rolls and other maneuvers you'd use to escape a, a car or truck. So if you live under a highway um, or over the highway on the, you know, the underside of a bridge, uh, you know, you're, you want those short wings to, uh, you know, to escape the traffic that you're constantly facing. So that's, you know, cars driving animal evolution in you know in really the blink of an eco of a, of a geological eye you know just in a, just a few decades you know cars have really transformed the uh, the morphology of these birds mm-hmm. yeah and you know just because you mentioned it um thinking that that one million number might be an underestimate a kind of consistent theme through the book uh that maybe comes more toward the end is that the part of the problem is just this is a really hard thing to measure um so both the roadkill numbers and just general road impacts. Um, so, so yeah, what makes it hard to measure? Yeah, it's you know, it's, I think it's hard to measure for a number of reasons. I mean, I mean, first is that you know, animals are just kind of. I mean, a lot of small animals, especially, are just inconspicuous, right? You're, you know, you're, you were, we're driving along, you know, elevated above the pavement, you know, in our little enclosed bubbles, you know, moving at seventy miles an hour. So of course we don't, you know, we don't see the, the little carcasses by the side of the highway you know yeah we maybe we probably see the you know the deer and the elk you know the bigger the bigger animals but you know we certainly don't see the frogs toads salamanders song songbirds i mean one of the one of the things that i did in the course of working on this book was i, I did a kind of a a participatory or community science roadkill project you know these these bicycle based roadkill surveys where we're driving we're, we're riding along you know at, at uh, 12 miles an hour uh you know along the side of, of you know, some pretty busy highways in, in montana and I was just astonished by, you know, how much roadkill we detected that we we never would have seen from a car. You know, things like 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 the birds, especially, um, you know, and 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 that's I think the birds are, you know, that that's that's when I when I said earlier that uh, you know that a million animals a day is probably an underestimate. I mean, there you know there are there are some more recent studies suggesting that a million birds a day are being killed by cars. You know, so, so set aside all of the mammals and reptiles and amphibians, and you know we might be losing a million birds a day. Um, so you know, I I I, th- I think there's something about there's something kind of tragically ironic about about that in that you know it's it's the speed of our cars that is obliterating wildlife, and yet the speed of our cars is also concealing the impacts, right? Because we're, mm. you know, we're, we're, we're moving so fast uh, and we're sort of perched above the highway, you know, a number of feet, again, enclosed in our little, you know, steel and glass capsules. You know, we, we don't, we just don't see the, the impacts that we have. You know, we don't, we don't notice those carcasses. So speed is both killing wildlife and, and somehow kind of airbrushing our, our highways simultaneously. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to help with some of this, uh, different localities, uh, have, have built different forms of wildlife crossings, um, that, you know, help, I guess, I guess they're what they sound like. They help wildlife get across the road. Uh, so what are some of the different forms these can take? Yeah. So wildlife crossings, you know, come in all kinds of different shapes and sizes, you know, everything from, you know, big, uh, kind of capacious overpasses or bridge land bridges, essentially, um, you know, that have been used to help uh, grizzly bears cross highways, very famously in Banff National Park, to, you know, little, uh, again, very inconspicuous tunnels, um, you know, that you could drive over and never know were there, um, that have been, you know, really effective in helping toads, uh, you know, cross, uh, cross roadways, especially in, in Europe. Um, so you've got this, you know, this kind of range of, uh, you know, this range of, options and you know in these these kinds of bridges tunnels underpasses um you know in in uh in central and south america you know where there are lots of primates you know you often see kind of like rope ladders uh, above highways that allow allow monkeys to to cross you know these sorts of structures have been shown to be 
really effective. You know, typically, uh, you know, they re- they reduce roadkill by an, about ninety percent. Um, and then, you know, they really work best when there are fences between them, right? Because like what the very common question is, how do the animals know how to use them? And, you know, the answer is usually that you need fences to keep the animals from crossing the highway itself. And then the fences kind of guide the animals to the passages. Um, so when you have this combination of wildlife crossings and fences, you know, typically roadkill drops by about 90% uh, and animals are able, just as important, um, to, you know, cross the highway to reach, you know, that that critical habitat on the other side. You know, maybe it's, you know, if, if you're uh, an elk or a pronghorn, you know, maybe you're trying to get to, you know, a, a low elevation valley where you're going to spend the winter feeding. You know, if you're uh, a mountain lion, you know, maybe you're dispersing from your home territory, you know, looking for a, a new place to live and a, a, a mate to, uh, you know, pass along your genes with, uh, you know, whatever you need. The idea is that, you know, these wildlife crossings help you safely cross the road and, and reach that, uh, you know, those, those important habitats or, or resources. So you mentioned mountain lions. Um, I grew up at the foot of the Simi Hills in Southern California. Oh, you did? Um, cool. Yeah. That's great. Wow. Uh, so it was, I've never actually seen a, a mountain lion around, but my, my mom I know has out hiking or biking. Um, and so, yeah, it was exciting to see a whole chapter about this wildlife bridge that's under construction, only maybe two or three freeway exits from uh, my hometown. Um, and I, I, I lived with my parents for about a year and a half um, during like peak pandemic and the like local weekly paper uh, would often have these letters to the editor and often a common subject of debate was the uh, mountain lion wildlife crossing and uh-huh. you had people being like why are we spending like 87 million dollars on this and, you know it's an outrage and then you had you had people supporting the mountain lions um so why is this uh, particular crossing a so expensive but b also kind of a unique undertaking yeah so the the, the crossing that you're talking about is you know there's right this very famous uh sort of as you say, under construction land bridge at, uh, and, oh, that that's going to sort of bridge uh, disparate populations of mountain lions, and you know basically the the idea is that you know in the Santa Monicas, um, in the Santa Monica Mountains, you know just outside of Los Angeles, you know there's there's, there's this little cluster of mountain lions um, that's sort of completely cut off. Uh, by by freeways by you know by uh, the 101 and uh, the 405 and you know all of these other these other highways uh, that are basically preventing them from either dispersing out or for new or from new or preventing new lions from dispersing into this population as a res- as a result you know there's this little cluster of mountain lions that are super inbred you know individual uh, males have had to mate with their daughters, their granddaughters, even their great granddaughters, um, because there's, there's just no way for them to find sort of genetic reinforcements. And, uh, you know, they're, they're sort of in, um, in this extinction vortex is sort of what the term that scientists have used to describe this, you know, this gradual decline that's, that's, you know, being caused by their own chronic inbreeding. So the solution is, you know, is to get more lions into this population um, and for, you know, the lions that are being born in this population to disperse out into the, you know, the Simi Hills and and other uh, kind of habitats beyond. Uh, The problem is that, you know, standing in the way of of that dispersal uh, is the 101, you know, which is, which is the the busiest, uh, you know, the busiest freeway in the country. Um, You know, it's, it's uh, 10 lanes of traffic, 12 if you include the shoulders. So, you know, obviously you need a, a truly, gargantuan structure, um, you know, to cross this gargantuan freeway. And, and, uh, you know, not only that, um, you know, the freeway is such a, an obstacle to wildlife that, you know, it requires a lot of engineering to make the wildlife crossing appealing to animals, right? I mean, you think about all of the noise and light pollution from that freeway, that's a, a huge deterrent to animals even approaching the road, right? So, you, you know, you really have to do, you know, a lot of a lot of engineering to create a crossing that might even entice them, you know, and so, so this, this giant land bridge is going to have lots of, you know, vegetated screens and berms and, you know, little rock walls and, you know, and just features that are designed to kind of mask 
the busiest freeway in the country. And, you know, and that, that takes a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of engineering, as, as you, as you say, and a lot of money, you know, and so the price tag for this, this crossing is, is, uh, you know, $87 million, which, you know, is vastly more, um, than wildlife crossings, uh, elsewhere in the country, you know, typically a wildlife overpass is costing something like six to ten million dollars um so you know this this uh gigantic liberty canyon crossing is you know many times more than that um but you know a couple of things that i would say in its defense i mean first most of that money is uh you know has, has been raised through private donations um you know so when when letter writers complain you know well why are we spending all this money on mountain lions well they're not spending the money it's not tax <laughs> it's not taxpayer money it's you know it's private donations from wealthy philanthropists um and you know second i think that this the just the kind of the outsized dimensions and fame of this project you know are really doing a lot to kind of catalyze wildlife crossing interest elsewhere in the country and, and the world. You know, here's this incredibly high visibility pro project over this massive freeway, uh, you know, that's endorsed by people like Leonardo DiCaprio, you know, all of these celebrities in Los Angeles have kind of come together to, uh, to you know, to support this project, uh, you know, and their involvement, uh, you know, raises awareness, I think, and, and visibility for the entire cause of habitat connectivity. So it's true that this is, you know, this is a, an enormous investment in, in uh, you know, in animal friendly infrastructure, but, you know, hopefully it'll, it'll also kind of you know, raise visibility and, and uh, awareness for, you know, for maybe less ambitious projects uh, in places where they're just as desperately needed. Yeah, I I think one of the things that's interesting about this project and about, it sounds like all or most wildlife crossings is just engineering them well, such that the animals will actually use them kind of requires trying to think like an animal, um, you know, whether like you were mentioning, what will they hear? What will they see? You know, I think you have an example of like a tunnel that deer weren't using because it was too like narrow and dark and, you know, um, just kind of, yeah, that it's not just build a way to get across, but a way that is actually attractive. Yeah. You know, and that's, I mean, that's kind of the, the, the other great sort of challenge of, of this, you know, this, uh, Liberty Canyon crossing in California over the, over, uh, over the one Oh one, you know, is that, is the mountain lions are, are, the flagship for this project, you know, and certainly, you know, the, the crossing wouldn't exist without them, you know, but they're just one of a, a bunch of species that are, you know, are theoretically going to use this structure, right? And, and you know, and the, the engineers and the landscape architects who are, who are designing and building it, you know, are trying to account for all of those species, you know, so yes, you know, you need you know, you, you need this big open crossing for mountain lions, but you also need, you know, little patches of shrubs and chaparral, you know, that, that rent tits, these little, you know, these little birds that don't fly super well can kind of hopscotch between, you know, you need log and rock piles that are going to be used by, you know, lizards and snakes. Uh, you know, in, in their case, they're, they're even, you know, sort of inoculating the soil with, uh, you know, mycorrhizal fungi, uh, you know, that'll, that'll sort of stimulate vegetation growth to really create this whole ecosystem uh, atop, atop this, this wildlife crossing. So, you know, that's one of the things that attracted me to this, this book topic many years ago was just, you know, the kind of the immense imaginative challenge of, you know, of perceiving our infrastructure the way that wild animals do, you know, it, it feels like it's a kind of a fascinating form of science, but it also, you know, it's a form of empathy too, in a sense, right? You are, we're sort of forcing ourselves to enter those animals' shoes or their, you know, their paws or hooves uh, mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, and, and see the, see the world as, as they do. And, you know, I think that anything that forces us to consider animal standpoints of, of being and life is, is worthwhile. Yeah, so you mentioned empathy. Uh, there are also lower tech ways of helping wildlife cross the street. Um, and you talk about uh, people who sometimes with reptiles and amphibians uh, spend their nights just picking them up and carrying them across. Uh, I don't know, I, I found the description of, of this in some ways powerful, um, but also, of course, it, it kind of seems limited in scope. Uh, so what, yeah, what, what do, who is doing this, uh, and what are the impacts? Yeah. So, you know, all over, all over, not only the country, but, you know, really the world, I mean, this really, you know, dates back to Europe in the 1960s, you know, are these, these kind of brigades of, 
mostly amphibian movers, you know, typically, you know, on, on big spring nights, you know, you get these kind of these mass migrations of amphibians, uh, you know, crossing roads as they, you know, as they move towards breeding ponds. Uh, and, you know, of course, they, they get crushed en masse, you know, unlike, uh, unlike a deer, you know, a, a, a wood frog or a spotted salamander, you know, has no concept of what traffic is. They don't, you know, they don't, they don't wait for the cars to, to go by. You know, they just, they're just, they're just going, you know, and as a result, mm-hmm. they, they really get smashed in just prodigious numbers. And, you know, the kind of the logical response that has arisen is, is just helping them, you know, picking them up in, in buckets and, and, uh, you know, moving them uh, across the road, you know, in the direction of, of where they're going. Uh, and there are, you know, many, many, volunteer groups, again, all over the world, um, you know, who do, who do some variation of this, you know, and are collectively moving, you know, certainly hundreds of thousands and, and probably millions of uh, amphibians uh, every, every year. And, you know, there, I mean, there is something really beautiful about that impulse. And, you know, I got to participate in a, uh, a frog shuttle, uh, you know, near uh, it, just outside of Portland, Oregon, um, or in Portland, Oregon. Um, really, I guess, it's, I guess it is within city limits. Uh, and you know, it was it was it was lovely. It was it was uh, you know, kind of a, a beautiful, uh, you know, a beautiful moment um, to see you know all of all of these these people you know out kind of patrolling the fringes of this marsh with their headlamps, you know, waiting for uh, red-legged frogs to to emerge. Um, you know, there's there's something kind of meditative and, and beautiful about it. And certainly, you know, I, I, I love that expression of ecological empathy. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, as you alluded to, I think it, you know, it is, it is a limited response, right? Um, you know, it's, it would be certainly preferable if we didn't have to do this for them. Um, you know, if, if, uh, if, you know, wildlife crossings uh, allowed them to make these migrations without our help. And, you know, and, and those do exist, you know, there are, um, you know, there are wildlife underpasses for amphibians. Um, but, you know, they don't, they don't, they, they often work well. Uh, they don't always work super well, just, you know, amphibians are, they're, they're kind of, you know, they have their own sort of ecological requirements, right? They, you know, they have to remain moist, um, you know, and, and uh, you know, these little passages, you know, sometimes dry up when they don't have kind of grates in the roof that allow water to enter the, uh, the, the tunnel or sometimes they get flooded. Um, so, you know, in some ways, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the, the amphibian issue is, it's it's been a tricky one to solve, and a, you know, in a, a lot of a lot of respects, and you know, and these these kind of bucket brigades are are you know a, a really um, a really admirable solution in in some ways, but you know, I think even the people do, who who do them would would uh, admit that they're you know imperfect solutions as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So about a third of the way through this book, um, I was again both kind of blown away by the scale, but also you know starting to be cautiously optimistic. You know, you had mentioned how, um, you know, in some places, wildlife crossings can decrease roadkill by 90%. Um, and you talked about all these ways that individuals are helping, that, you know, there's infrastructure either that we have already built or can build in the future that could help. Um, and yeah, I don't know, wildlife crossings were making me a bit optimistic. Then I got to this chapter about sound. Um, and again, it was something that, I, uh, yeah, I, I know, uh, myself and a few other, uh, podcast listeners, um, have a, a book club associated with podcasts. We read Ed Young's, um, An Immense World recently, which is about animal senses. Yeah. And he, he ends a bit by talking about noise pollution. So it was on my radar, I guess, to use a noise-esque, uh, metaphor, but, <laughs> but again, kind of the degree to which road noise can impact wildlife also surprised me. So can you, can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I, th- I, I think that's, I think that your experience of, you know, sort of feeling cautiously optimistic about solutions to road ecological problems um, and then being confronted with, you know, the kind of the immense challenge of noise pollution. I mean, that, that basically, mirrors my you know my own experience of working on this book you know and it's it's not i mean it's not just i mean we'll talk about the ecological impacts in a second but it's you know it's i mean you just begin with the human impacts you know they're they're mm-hmm. immense you know it's just like when you dig into the the scientific literature on you know on the the health impacts of 
road noise pollution it's it's horrifying you know it's it's uh, i mean you know road noise is it's you know it's elevating our our blood pressure it's you know we're releasing more uh you know more cortisol more, more stress hormones in its presence you know it's it's literally uh you know it's increasing our risk of stroke and cardiac disease and and literally shortening our lifespans you know by uh you know by the magnitude of years in some in some cases you know and i, I spent a lot of this book you know writing um i spent a lot of uh, you know a lot of the process of writing this book i was i was living in in uh, in, in spokane washington um you know just kind of a stone's throw from i-90 and on this busy arterial that led to the interstate that you know people drove way too fast down um and you know i sort of didn't realize how a wash, you know, my wife and I were in, in road noise until I started reading the literature and realizing, oh yeah, this, these, this acoustic, this acoustic pollution that's just washing over us all of the time, you know, is again, literally shortening our, our lives. And it was, it was kind of, it was, it was pretty horrifying. Um, you know, and then, and then you think about, you know, it's, it's impact on, on wild animals. And, you know, it's certainly, it's much the same. It's, you know, it's, it's a driver of stress hormones. It's also a form of habitat loss, right? Um, you know, that if you're, you know, if you're, if, I mean, wild animals are so dependent on their hearing to make a living, right? If you're, you know, if you're a uh, you know, a prey species like a, you know, a little songbird or a rodent or something, you know, you're constantly listening um, for, you know, the approach of a predator and vice versa. If you're a predator, like a, an, an owl, for example, you know, the, the most wonderful hearing creatures in the world, uh, you know, you're, you're totally dependent on being able to hear your prey, right? You know, I think even more than vision, you know, hearing is, is just uh, absolutely essential for wild animals. And if you're, in the presence of a, of a of a of a highway, you know that road noise prevents you from doing the hearing you need to survive. You know, so so road noise is really this kind of dramatic form of habitat loss that's driving animals uh, away from roads and and uh, you know forcing them from places they they'd otherwise love to live. You know, I think that like I mean to me the best sort of experiment showing this uh, was this thing called the Phantom Road Project, which was done by in, in Idaho by, uh, you know, a bunch of researchers at, at Boise State University. And basically they just, you know, they, they recorded the sound of traffic, um, not traffic from a giant interstate, traffic from a, a national park, from Glacier National Park. Uh, and they played the sound of traffic through speakers in this, you know, roadless forest uh, on a mountainside during bird migration season. And basically what they found uh, is that, you know, is that songbirds tended to avoid this area where road noise is happening. Uh, and the birds that did sort of inhabit that area were in worse physical body condition because they had to spend all of their time looking around for predators, um, you know, rather than listening for them and, and did less foraging as a result. So they were sort of less fit um, potentially to complete their, my, their migration. Um, so, you know, it's, and it's, a, it's a tough, it's a tough problem because, you know, as you, as you, again, as you alluded to, you know, unlike roadkill, which has this, you know, this kind of, you know, not, not a perfect solution, but there's, there's clearly a solution to the problem of roadkill and, and, you know, and, and wildlife movement, right? And that solution is fences and wildlife crossings. You know, we know that stuff works well. We know that, you know, that fences keep animals off the road. We know that wildlife crossings help them, you know, pass roads safely. So like, there is a solution there, as you say, whereas road noise, you know, there's, there's not really, uh, there's not really a great one, you know, yes, you know, sound barriers by the side of the highway, you know, those are somewhat helpful, you know, in residential neighborhoods for people. Um, but, you know, you're not going to put up sound barriers, uh, you know, across the uh, entire, entire continent, obviously. And anyway, those barriers, you know, are sort of limited in their, in their effectiveness and scope. So, you know, you def I definitely came away from, you know, the road noise issue feeling uh, a little bit, you know, a little bit discouraged or more than a little bit discouraged, quite discouraged, you know, and, <laughs> Uh, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really, a really challenging issue. Yeah. I, in the back of my mind during that chapter, I was thinking, well, maybe this is something electric cars will help with. Um, but it will, but not as much as I would have thought. Uh, you, you say around 35 miles an hour, I think it is. Most of the noise comes from tires and not from the engine itself. Right, right. Yeah, when you when you hear a, when you hear a highway, you know what you're hearing is 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 tires on pavement, not not primarily engine noise. You know, I mean, certainly, uh, I do think that you know that that electric uh, electric vehicles will will help. Um, you know, in sort of more 
suburban settings, you know, where, where road noise is really impacting human life. Um, you know, cars that are kind of tooling around the suburbs at, you know, 30 miles an hour, they're certainly a lot, a lot quieter. Um, you know, and that's, that's certainly good from a, a public health perspective, you know, but that, that highway noise issue, um, that's a, that's a pretty intractable one. And, you know, certainly tires, I mean, tires have gotten much quieter over, over time. Um, but you know, you can, you can still hear them. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. So maybe let's switch from that to what, from at least a certain point of view, might be considered silver linings. Uh, so for instance, you know, you talk about how the strip of land alongside highways is often, you know, some of the only land left that can support native plants. And, you know, for instance, uh, it's sort of, sort of a butterfly migration corridor in the central United States. Um, you talk about, you know, the so-called necrobiome, um, where, you know, the tragedy of roadkill does lead to, you know, foraging for other animals and food for other animals, including humans. Um, but then on the other hand, uh, you know, you talk about the presence of, you know, again, either of these native plants or of the roadkill as a food source brings these animals, be they butterflies or bears or whoever else, closer to the road and might plausibly make it more likely that, you know, from coming so close to the road, they then get hit. So, so how do you think about kind of these, I don't know, the, the road itself as not just an obstacle to ecosystems, but as an ecosystem? Yeah, I think, I think that's exactly right. You know, the road, the road truly is a, a novel ecosystem. Uh, in some respects, you know, I, I think that that was that was kind of an important story for me to tell. I mean, certainly, you know, road ecology is, you know, is largely a story of habitat loss and death and destruction, you know, but there are, I mean, every novel ecosystem, you know, has has winners as well as as well as losers, you know, uh, and you, um, you know, you, I mean, you, you named a couple, you know, certainly, uh, you know, some pollinating insects, um, you know, are, are happy along roadsides, right? You can sort of picture that, you know, in the, in the Midwest, you know, the vast majority of the land now is, is, you know, this kind of glyphosate drenched, you know, corn and soy monoculture and, uh, you know, and, and roadsides in, in many cases are sort of the, the last little remnant strips of, uh, of prairie that are kind of hanging on to life and, you know, providing, uh, you know, nectar feeding stations for monarch butterflies and, uh, you know, other, other, uh, other insects. Um, you know, to, by the same token, I mean, that, you know, that necrobiome concept that you referenced, you know, this idea that the, you know, the road is this source of carcasses, you know, and carcasses are immensely ecologically valuable, you know, for scavenging, scavenging raptors like, you know, vultures and uh, golden eagles and bald eagles and, you know, also ravens and coyotes, you know, lots of animals are sort of coming to the roadside to, the, to feed, right? So, so the, you know, the, the road can be this, you know, this source of, of abundance and, and resources and plenty, at least, you know, for some limited group of organisms. But, you know, as you say, uh, you know, the road is a, it's a, it's a dangerous place to be, right? And, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of risk of the, you know, the road becoming uh, an ecological trap, you know, this, this sort of, system that promises resources and draws animals in uh, and then kills them. You know, you see that a lot with uh, with golden eagles, for example, you know, which which end up, you know, especially in winter, um, you know, when food is otherwise scarce, you know, they go to the roadside, you know, in, in states like Wyoming and Utah, uh, you know, to feed on dead deer and elk and pronghorn that have been hit by cars. Um, and, you know, and then they get, they get hit by, by cars themselves. You know, it's hard to kind of achieve liftoff when you're a giant raptor, you know, with a, a belly full of uh, venison. So, you know, roadkill is a, a significant source of, uh, of, of mortality for eagles, you know, this kind of majestic creature that you wouldn't really associate with, you know, living along grubby highway shoulders. Um, and, uh, you know, so, so there, I mean, I think that, you know, like there, we have to, we have to be cognizant of that, you know, it's not enough to just say, oh yeah, you know, there, there are animals who are, you know, who are making a living along the road. So, you know, no, no big deal. Um, you know, there, I mean, there, there have been studies basically showing that, you know, you can drag carcasses, you know, 40 feet off the roadside, get them away from the kind of the lanes of traffic, you know, and then eagles can feed in peace, uh, you know, on these carcasses and roadkill becomes, you know, a source of abundance for at, at least some, some animals, you know, um, without posing a huge threat to their, their safety and survival. So, you know, I, I think that, uh, yeah, it's, I think that's a lot of what this book's about, you know, the concept of road as an ecosystem and, and one that we have to 
be thoughtful about and, and manage, you know, and, and, uh, and, you know, think about the ways in which, you know, the resources the road provides, um, you know, can very easily become dangerous and, and deadly. Yeah. Uh, another thing you, you discuss in the book that um, I found a little surprising or just hadn't thought much about um, was the potential impacts of self-driving cars on uh, road ecology. Um, yeah. Can you just explain this for listeners? Yeah. You know, I think, I think that's, you know, it's, it's a, it's a complicated question, you know, and, and one that, um, you know, it's going to take sort of many decades to, uh, to reveal itself, but I mean, certainly, you know, so one of, I mean, one of the promises that, that, uh, you know, autonomous vehicle manufacturers and developers, you know, have, have always made is that, you know, they're, they're going to reduce, um, you know, reduce wildlife vehicle collisions. You know, I think, I think that there is truth to that, right? I mean, I'm, you know, uh, you know, we, I mean, look, we, we humans are, we're terrible drivers, you know, we're, we're, we're really bad at, at, uh, you know, avoiding, avoiding, uh, I mean, avoiding and detecting obstacles and, and, um, you know, of course, uh, yeah, we're, we're just, you know, we're just, uh, you know, and, and, I mean, Tom Vanderbilt's book traffic, you know, really gets into this, but there's just this, you know, we ha- we're, we're, our, our, our own senses are just, you know, so easily flummoxed by the kind of the profoundly unnatural act of driving. Um, you know, I, and I do think there's certainly a world in which, you know, at some point in the future, autonomous vehicles are much, much better at uh, avoiding animals than, than we are, uh, at least large animals. You know, I, I, I do think that there's, you know, it's not out of the question that, you know, deer, elk and moose collisions become, you know, if not a thing of the past exactly, uh, you know, certainly much less common and frequent than they are today. Um, so that's good, right? That's something that, you know, that again, lots of autonomous vehicle makers have kind of gestured to as being one of the benefits of their, their product. Um, but, you know, I think it's important to remember that, uh, you know, that, that I, unless AV manufacturers really care a lot more about snakes and frogs and squirrels than I think they do, uh, you know, autonomous vehicles are not going to do anything um, for small animal roadkill, uh, you know, because, you know, I mean, AV engineers are primarily concerned with avoiding human collisions, right? So, you know, any, any, anything that's, you know, larger than a toddler, you know, their sensors are likely to detect, um, which again is good for deer, uh, and probably meaningless for, you know, opossums. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, and I think there's a world in which there's actually, you know, autonomous vehicles actually lead to more small animal roadkill in that, you know, when I'm, when I'm driving, um, and, you know, Dayton, I'm sure you do this too, uh, you know, you, we break and, you know, swerve to avoid snakes and turtles and, uh, you know, and squirrels and, uh, other small critters. Um, whereas, uh, you know, our robotic chauffeurs are not going to do that. Um, you know, so it's, it's, mm-hmm. it is, it's plausible to imagine more small animal road kill. And it's also really plausible to imagine just more, more vehicles on the road period, right? Um, you know, once, you know, once, once cars are kind of freed from their drivers, you know, you can imagine this kind of like limitless fleet of, uh, you know, of, of autonomous, uh, trucks and delivery vans and other, you know, other vehicles, you know, just cruising all over the, all over the, the world, you know, sort of meeting our desire for instant package gratification from Amazon. And, you know, and, and certainly once driving is less of a chore for us, you know, we, it's, you know, it's plausible to imagine us spending more time in our cars, you know, which, which, um, you know, again, liberated from, driving can become, you know, like mobile entertainment centers, you know, you can just, you know, you can just cruise around in your little conference room or, you know, or Netflix entertainment <laughs> room. Um, and, uh, you know, so you, so, you, so you could imagine a world in which, you know, there's just a lot, a lot more vehicle miles traveled um, as a result of, of autonomy. Uh, and of course, that's, that's not good for wildlife. That's just going to enhance the barrier effect and make it harder for animals to cross roads. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one another just fascinating anecdote you have that is probably the sort of thing that's fixable, but just there was an example of an AV that was trained on, I think, on a moose or something, and then when it saw a kangaroo, it didn't know what to do because a kangaroo moves totally differently. And yeah, that was yeah, that was that was that was Volvo, and ex- exactly right, right? They they trained their algorithms on on moose in Sweden, and then you know when they when their Australian arm tested it, uh, you know, kangaroos totally you know, blew, blew the algorithm's mind. And, you know, as, as you say, they, you know, they, they, they did get that fixed. Um, but, you know, I think it just goes to show that, that, you know, we don't entirely know how autonomous vehicles and animals are going to interact. And, you know, there are certainly going to be surprises. 
Yeah. So speaking of that region of the world, um, you have a chapter where you profile people in Tasmania, uh, I believe, who devote significant time and resources to rehabilitating injured wildlife from roads or wildlife whose mothers were killed in, in road accidents. Um, and one thing you point out, which um, I think is maybe worth discussing, is that you know if we talk about the, the you know the trouble with the impact of roads and cars on wildlife. Um, you know, an ecologist might focus on biodiversity or impacts on you know endangered species in particular. A traffic planner might think about how deer collisions hurt humans and damage their property. Um, but everyday people often are are maybe most thinking, or at least largely thinking about. Um, you know, the, the well-being of individual animals, whether they're endangered or not. Uh, so I wanted to ask, kind of <laughs> philosophically, how do you think about um, the harm done by cars, and how do the people you spoke with think about it? Yeah, it's a, it, you know, it's a great question, Dayton. And I, I mean, I think that certainly, as, as, you know, as you kind of alluded to there, I mean, there, you know, there are different reactions to, you know, to what the harms of roadkill really are, you know, I mean, in the course of working in this book, you know, I mean, I spoke to literally hundreds of people, you know, sort of professionals working in the road ecology space, you know, wildlife biologists monitoring populations and engineers, you know, building and designing wildlife crossings, you know, and, and I think that those, you know, those folks, um, you know, as you say, they, they tend to be really focused on, you know, on things like driver safety, on animal populations. Um, and, you know, certainly those are, those are things that I care about too. Um, but it is interesting that, you know, when you, when you talk to, you know, the, the average, you know, every, every day, uh, you know, resident of a, you know, community that has roadkill in it, you know, what they're primarily thinking about um, is the suffering that, that roads inflict, you know, the suffering and death that they inflict on wild animals. Um, I mean, there's, there's probably not much that we do, you know, I mean, there's probably not much that we do to inflict more suffering on more wild animals than drive cars, right? Right. Um, mm -hmm. And you know, and and you know, and and, and especially with you know, with, with like with larger larger creatures, um, you know, like like deer again, which I keep talking about. Um, you know, death by car is is not an instantaneous death most of the time. You know, it's really like a, a miserable, you know, prolonged. Um, thing that that you know transpires over the course of you know many hours or or, or days, um, and you know there have been studies showing that you know that actually a lot there's a lot more roadkill you know um, a few hundred meters off of off of uh, highways than you know there are on, on the highway shoulders you know and the reason for that is that you know animals are not they're not dying instantaneously right they're you know they're getting off the road and then you know sort of expiring over a long period of time and that's you know that's the kind of Thing that's incredibly disturbing to uh, you know to um, a lot of people. I think very very you know right rightfully so. It's disturbing to me too. You know, and I mean the reason that I ended up sort of exploring this issue in in Tasmania um, is that you know in, in, of course in Australia you know the the animals are marsupials right, uh, and as a result you know lots of oftentimes you know a a, a wallaby or a, a wombat a female wallaby or wombat will be killed and they'll you know they'll their their joey will actually survive in their pouch you know because they're they're you know sort of protected by their mother's own body um and you know as a result you've got you have this kind of vast army of volunteers you know who who just canvass the Tasmanian countryside looking for joeys that have survived these car collisions in their mother's pouches and then raising them um you know from uh you know from you know from their little like pink hairless stage all the way to adulthood which can take you know a couple of years and it's basically constant work and it's just this incredible expression of you know love and and respect and appreciation for wildlife i i, I think there's just this incredible culture of you know caring about the victims of roadkill that you know i don't really think exists here in here in the u.s so i was just i was really inspired by that kind of that that tasmanian culture of of roadkill love and caring and respect and concern uh and you know i think there's something to be to be learned from that you know it's it's um you know again i mean i, th I think that there's this there's, there has there's been this very long divide um i think between you know sort of professional wildlife biologists and you know kind of citizen wildlife rehabilitators uh 
you know, who I, I think are, you know, sort of, I mean, I think that like the, a very common attitude among biologists seems to be, you know, well, if, if our primary, if our primary unit of concern is the animal population, you know, do we really, you know, should we really be lavishing resources on the care of, you know, individual abundant animals like squirrels and raccoons, you know, in, in Australia, you know, it'd be wallabies and, uh, you know, and kangaroos and, and wombats, you know, and, and, and to me, you know, I think that's just, I think that, that divide or dichotomy between, you know, professional wildlife biology and, you know, sort of uh, volunteer animal rehabilitation, um, you know, I think that's, that's really a, a false, a false divide in that, you know, in that any culture that respects the life of, individual animals, you know, is, is also likely to be a culture that, you know, implements more systemic solutions like wildlife crossings to prevent roadkill, right? So, so to me, you know, animal rehabilitation and, and wildlife biology are, you know, fundamentally compatible rather than incompatible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, uh, I advise listeners who enjoy that answer to uh, go back and, and listen to my first episode, which was an interview with uh, the wildlife journalist Emma Maris about her book Wild Souls, because uh, it's pretty much entirely about about that that balance, that relationship between caring for the individual and caring for the whole. Yeah, and I, you know, I mean, I mean, Emma, I'm a, I'm a you know, great admirer of Emma's work, and and that I mean, that book was was a, a huge influence on my own thinking as I as I worked on on this book. You know, I think I, I went into this book basically thinking not thinking much about you know, the lives of individual animals and, the, you know, the suffering that we inflict upon them. And, you know, and then I read Wild Souls and thought, oh, man, I, I, I need it. You know, I need, I need at least a chapter about, you know, about the lived experience of animals that are, are uh, you know, impacted by cars. So, Emma, I mean, Emma's just a, a fantastic writer and thinker. And I've, I've always admired, you know, her willingness to kind of challenge, challenge conventional wisdom. And, and she's been a great influence on me. Well, I, I wanted to, to raise another maybe more philosophical point that comes up in the book. Um, which is kind of like, what is wilderness? Um, and it's especially relevant because you point out, you know, in, in many situations it's been defined as a place without roads. Um, but then our, our national forests and national parks actually have all sorts of roads going through them. Um, and yeah, you know, there, there are, are critics of the idea of wilderness as a place devoid of human impact because this erases the history of indigenous peoples and it doesn't really exist. Um, but then, uh, yeah, you also talk about, you know, the, the value of roadless areas. Um, so what, how did, did work on this project at all change or impact how you think about the value or usefulness of, of wilderness or even what it is? Yeah, it's, you know, it's a, it's a great question, Dayton. And I, I think that one of the things that I try to draw on this book and one of the distinctions that, you know, that has kind of clarified and, my mind over time, and you know, I hope I hope is clear to readers as well. Is just, you know, is the is the distinction between wilderness, the abstract philosophical concept, you know, an area untravel, untrammeled by man, where you know man is a visitor who must not remain, as the you know the Wilderness Act famously put it, um, and wilderness as a, a fundamentally physical place, um, you know, of, of sort of immense ecological importance, you know, and, and I mean, look, there's just a, a vast body of literature showing that, you know, whatever creature you care about, you know, grizzly bears, salmon, elk, you know, wolves, you name it. I mean, the kind of the primary controller of their, you know, their ability to persist on the landscape and, the, and their, you know, their abundance is the density of roads, you know, roads in forests uh, are, they're just, they're just bad for nature. There's, you know, there's no getting around that, you know, they're, 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 un, they're unbelievably destructive, you know, in, in that, um, you know, they just permit humans to enter habitats uh, and humans are, are bad for wildlife. You know, there's, it's, it's sort of hard to, it's hard to get around that. Um, so, you know, again, I, I mean, I try to, I try to draw that distinction that, you know, that, that wilderness, you know, the kind of the, the philosophical concept is, you know, increasingly passe in, in many quarters. And, you know, and part of that is that, as you, as you say, you know, it kind of, you know, the notion of, of, uh, you know, an area untrammeled by man, you know, ignores the sort of the history of, of indigenous impacts to land, um, you know, through the things like, you know, through, through things like controlled burns, you know, which of course native people did very artfully for thousands of years, um, you know, and, and, and it also, you know, the, I, mean, I think like the other thing about wilderness, that's kind of, that makes it kind of, um, 
you know, problematic, you know, is the fact that obviously, you know, as we, as we are changing the climate, right, there are no places that are untrammeled by humans, you know, our, our carbon emissions kind of trammel everything, right? So this, you know, so again, this notion of, you know, of, of, of wilderness, um, you know, sort of has been sort of like very famously problematized by, you know, by William Cronin, especially the, his, the great historian, um, you know, who wrote The Trouble with Wilderness, this very, you know, iconic, influential, essay kind of attacking the whole concept, you know, and, and, you know, and that's, that's fine. I try to, I, uh, you know, I, I kind of try to stay out of that philosophical debate, but I, again, <laughs> I do, I do want to be very clear that, you know, that road, that wilderness as defined by its roadlessness, you know, it's, 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 it, it is this physical category of place that doesn't have roads in it. Um, you know, and I think that's just unbelievably important for wildlife and you know again a vast body of scientific literature shows that you know the most important thing we can do um you know for a lot of our you know famously iconic wide-ranging species like grizzly bears and you know wolverines and bull trout uh is just to keep roads out of places so you know wilderness as 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 philosophical concept okay that's fine you, you know you can you can attack that um you know but but wilderness as a physical as a physical ecological category of landscape defined by roadlessness, you know, I think from a conservation standpoint, the importance of those kinds of areas is, is basically unimpeachable. Yeah, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, and you, know, you mentioned keeping places roadless, um, but there are already so many places with roads. Um, and you, you mentioned at one point in a particular, I, I believe, national forest, um, that the some of the people involved have have successfully advocated for removing some some old roads there, and you actually uh, toward the end get to a very maybe different um, situation of road removal, um, which is removing like a highway from a a human city where you know highway construction has you know often disrupted, damaged, erased communities of color in particular, um, you know split apart poor communities split, you know, made cities less livable. Um, and where there's, I'm blanking on the city, but where they actually are removing a, a highway. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. That's in, in Syracuse. I mean, it's happening in many places, but that's that, that chapter is set in Syracuse, um, where, where I-81 is this sort of the offending highway, um, you know, and was basically this sort of viaduct that was, was just blasted through uh, a, a, a black community um, in the, you know, in the 19, uh, in the 1950s and 60s. Um, and, you know, I mean, I mean, to me, it was, you know, it was, it was really important. And I think, you know, I think to my, my, uh, my editor as well, you know, it was really important to kind of end on a chapter about, you know, our own lives um, being sort of in thrall of roads, right? I mean, there were just, you know, there were so many parallels between how, how roads affect humans and how they affect wild animals, you know, the same road noise pollution that we talked about, you know, that chases songbirds from habitat, you know, is again, shortening our own lifespans, you know, just as, just as, uh, you know, animals are, are killed, uh, by cars directly, you know, 40,000 people in the United States, uh, you know, die in, uh, you know, in, in car crashes every year, which is just a kind of an unfathomable number that, you know, somehow we've kind of learned to accept, uh, and blind ourselves to, which is, which is you know, sort of horrifying to think about. Um, so, you know, so, so it was, it was really important, I think, to, you know, to, to acknowledge, um, that look, you know, we, we are all, we are all organisms and, you know, we're, we're sort of all affected by roads. Um, but, you know, at the same time, we're not all affected equally, right? Uh, you know, as, as you, as you mentioned, um, you know, in, in, in many cases, especially kind of mid-century, you know, these, these urban freeways were very deliberately routed through communities of color as a way of, uh, you know, basically erasing those communities. Uh, and destroying them, and you know, and today, today we're kind of rethinking uh, the legacy of those those urban freeways, and you know, in in, in some cases, uh, you know, sort of fitfully starting to uh, demolish them, and and uh, you know, and and to you know, return those return cities to their you know to their surface streets, and and uh, you know, let them be kind of vibrant centers of you know human life and commerce rather than just uh you know places that are um kind of pierced by these these freeways and, and destroyed destroyed by them so you know i, th I think that's you know to, i mean i mean to me that's that's one of the exciting conversations happening now in the, sort of the infrastructure world you know is is the notion that you know infrastructure can be you know can be systemically racist you know it's not just i mean it's like it's not just you know concrete and steel you know it, it's it's uh it's you know it's freighted with all of these cultural 
and historic legacies and connotations, you know, and, and, um, you know, I think, I think that idea that, you know, that, that a road is never just a road. It's also all of the, all of the kind of the cultural and historic meaning that we freight it with. That's, that's a, that's a powerful idea to me. Um, yeah. So, so maybe to end, I know this isn't, uh, your, <laughs> your sole responsibility to solve every problem with roads, but let's say, uh, you're appointed minister of roads. Joe Biden calls you up. He's going to run in 2024 on a solely road ecology platform. Um, what, <laughs> what are, what should we do? <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, this, if, if, uh, if Pete Buttigieg is listening to this, this is, this is, this is, this is the prescription. No, I don't know. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really, it's a really hard question, you know? And it, I mean, it, I mean, I think that the, the answers differ depending on where you are, obviously, right? I mean, you know, in, in urban areas, you know, certainly the solution is just to get people out of cars, right? It's to, you know, is to, is to uh, you know, dramatically increase transit options and, you know, just re- reduce the, you know, the automobiles hold on, on cities and, you know, and to, to demolish, you know, urban freeways, uh, you know, where it makes sense, which is, you know, certainly in a lot of places. Um, from an ecological standpoint, you know, the, the, the problem is that, you know, road ecology problems are generally not concentrated in cities, right? I mean, the, mm-hmm. the places, the places where cars are destroying animals are the, are the places where there are a lot of animals and those tend to be, you know, rural places, right? I mean, it's, you know, like one chapter of this book is about, is about, um, you know, wildlife migrations in Wyoming and, you know, the impacts of, of highways on, you know, deer and elk and pronghorn. And it's, you know, it's really hard to imagine the transit system that is going to, you know, uh, overthrow the car in rural Wyoming, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I, I live, I live in rural Colorado, you know, and, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm lucky to be, I'm lucky to live in a town that is itself walkable, but, you know, I, I use, I use my car all the time, you know, getting to, you know, to trailheads and recreation areas and, you know, and, and going to the airport and, you know, doing all the things that we, we do in our cars. So, you know, I, I think, I think that's, so, so in those kinds of rural places um, where, you know, the car is going to, it's going to be tough to get people out of their cars en masse, you know, I mean, there the solution is certainly many, many, many more wildlife crossings, um, just, you know, dramatically increasing the kind of the, you know, the animal friendliness of our infrastructure, you know, and that's starting to happen, right? The Infrastructure Act in 2021 contained, contained this, uh, you know, this $350 million grant program that's, you know, going to fund uh, a bunch of new wildlife crossings uh, around around the country. Um, so that's, you know, that's that's good. That's promising. But at the same time, you know, 350 is, you know, I mean, that's a that's a, a drop in the bucket. And, you know, in the context of just, you know, our country's enormous transportation budget. So, you know, I, I think that would, you know, certainly be one of my acts as roads are would be to, you know, take the $350 million that, you know, was allocated towards wildlife crossings and federal budgets and make that, you know, something more like 3.5 billion or, or, uh, or, or more, but, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a really hard problem to solve in, in general, you know, the car is just such a, a tyrant at this point in, uh, you know, in our, in our country as you know, as you, as you've covered, uh, in the podcast before and, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's going to be incredibly challenging to, uh, you know, to mitigate its, its manifold impacts. Mm-hmm. And as you, uh, as you point out also in the book, it's, not just a U.S. problem; it's a, it's a global problem, and in many places, such as Brazil, it's it's becoming more of a problem. Um, so, yeah, it's going to take a, I think, a lot in a lot of places. Very much so. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, the ecologist uh, Bill Lawrence has talked about this idea of a, you know an infrastructure tsunami. You know, this wave of new. Uh, highways and rail lines and ports and fiber optic cables, you know, all of this infrastructure that's, you know, that's, that's sort of slated for, uh, you know, for the developing world, um, you know, and, and I mean, certainly, you know, that's, look, that I benefit from all of that stuff, right? I, you know, mm-hmm. I benefit from infrastructure just, just like, just like we all do, you know, and it, and it, w- it would be, um, you know, incredibly, uh, you know, churlish and, and, you know, I mean, probably a, a violation of human rights, you know, to, to, to say that, you know, well, we get our wonderful interstate highway system here in the U S but, you know, you guys, 
in uh, you know in in Nepal or uh, you know or or Brazil or you know or or Kenya don't um, you know because you know guess what roads are incredibly valuable right they're you know they mm-hmm. they get you know they get us to schools and to hospitals and they help you know connect farmers with with markets that lift people out of poverty you know um, but you know it's there also this 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 immense biodiversity challenge and crisis, right? And a lot of, you know, a lot of the highways that are slated for the developing world are, you know, going to, are, are currently slated to, you know, punch through some of the, the last intact tropical habitats on this, on this planet, uh, you know, and are likely to be a catastrophe for, you know, for elephants and leopards and tigers and, you know, all kinds of, all kinds of creatures, you know, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's one of the, you know, the places that road ecology can, you know, potentially be valuable is, you know, is, is that, is that it, you know, reminds us that, you know, these highways have impacts and it says, you know, Hey, if we're, you know, if we're going to do this development, you know, um, which is I think basically unavoidable in many cases, um, you know, maybe we can, we can avoid those really important habitats or if we have to, you know, if we have to, uh, impact them, you know, maybe we can do that in a less catastrophic way. You know, one of like, one of my favorite examples, uh, is in India, you know, where, where they, you know, they built a, a highway through a, a tiger reserve, uh, and they just, they just lifted the entire highway for many miles on, you know, these giant pillars so that animals can, you know, can move back and forth underneath the highway. So it's not like, discrete wildlife crossings it's like it's like the entire highway is one giant wildlife crossing in, mm-hmm. in a sense you know and that's the kind of, i mean that's 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 one of the things that you know when i think that when i started working on this book you know i sort of thought oh yeah you know like you know we you know our our western engineers in you know the, in north america and europe have kind of figured out how to do this right you know and we can help the rest of the world you know make their infrastructure less harmful you know and then you read about cases like that and, and realize that you know because countries like india aren't saddled with this you know ancient sclerotic highway system you know they can they can kind of you know do it if not right, at least, you know, much less wrong from the get go, you know, and, mm-hmm. and there's, a, there's a lot that we can learn from, you know, observing progress in, uh, in other countries here in our own. Well, yeah, I, I think that's all I had for you. Is there anything you want to add? No, that was, that was super thorough, Dayton. Thanks a lot for the, those, those fantastic questions. Yeah. Thanks for coming on the show. And, and as thorough as that was, I promise there is, a lot more in the book, Crossings, How Road Ecology is Shaping the Future of Our Planet. There's stuff we didn't get to, more details. Uh, and yeah, just really an eye-opening, uh, wonderful book. So yeah, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for, thanks for saying that. And thanks for all, all you're doing to uh, you know, raise awareness about uh, the problem of both automobility and, and the need for uh, empathy with our fellow creatures. So thanks a lot, Dayton. Well, likewise. Thank you so much for listening. Thanks to Ben for coming on the show. Um, most of all, I want to take this chance to thank everyone who has shared this podcast with a friend, who has signed up for my free newsletter, or who has supported this podcast over Patreon. I have 48 episodes over a year and a half, and I couldn't have done it without you. It's been a great learning experience for me. And I hope these back episodes can continue to be a resource for all of you, even as I go on grad school induced hiatus. Uh, the best way to keep up with me is that free newsletter. It'll probably be about once a month during grad school, just to keep you updated on what I'm writing, what I'm learning, stuff like that. And of course, like I said, there will be hopefully another wrap-up reflective episode sometime in September with my brother, um, but you can sign up for my newsletter to be kept updated about that. And yeah, once again, thank you so much, all of you, for listening, whether this is your first episode you ever listened to or your 48th, and I hope you have a great day. Hi. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah.